For many of us, summertime is a time to take a trip and to get away from our regular routines. Sometimes it's a trip to some faraway destination like a road trip to Maine or an overseas journey to a foreign country. But it could also be just a day trip to the beach or an afternoon of exploring the harbor by boat. Whether it's a day trip or a long journey, there are always preparations to be made before you set out on your adventure. If you're going to the beach, you're going to pack your sunscreen and your beach chair. If you're preparing for a long road trip to go camping in the mountains, you'd better pack some food and make sure you've got your hiking boots for the trail. Now, it's obvious that we need to make preparations anytime we are setting off on a physical journey, but it's not always obvious to us what preparations are needed as we set out to follow our Lord Jesus on this lifelong journey of faith. When it comes to the spiritual journey of following after our Lord Jesus, what are the things that we need to pack and prepare? And what are the things that we need to leave behind? So that spiritually speaking, we don't end up in the mountains with a beach chair and no hiking boots, or find ourselves out in the harbor with a tent and no paddle or sail. What do we need to know and understand, be prepared for this journey of following after Jesus? Well, that's what this passage from the Gospel according to Luke is all about. Preparing for our journey to Jerusalem. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, we've just been plopped down into the middle of the story, so we need to get ourselves oriented to where we are. Just a few days prior, Jesus had taken Peter, James, and John up onto the mountaintop where he was transfigured before them. This was the high point of Jesus' earthly ministry. It was that moment where it was most clear to his disciples that he was the very divine Son of God. But now they've come down from the mountain. And as Luke explains to us here in verse 55, 51, rather, Jesus then set his face toward Jerusalem. But this journey to Jerusalem, it's not going to be a straight line. If we were putting together a playlist for this trip, the title track would be The Long and Winding Road by the Beatles. Because lots of things are going to happen to Jesus and his disciples as they make their way toward Jerusalem. And what Luke wants us to understand is that the disciples' journey of following Jesus to Jerusalem, it serves as a kind of metaphor for the journey that each and every one of us are on right here today. As Christians, we are on the lifelong journey of following wherever Jesus leads as he makes his way to Jerusalem. And here at the beginning of the trip, Luke recounts several events that are meant to prepare us for that journey. But unlike the preparations for a physical trip, like packing your boots for a hike or, or your beach chair for the beach, these words of preparation are words that we need not only at the beginning of our Christian life, but throughout it. Because sometimes the long and winding road of the Christian life can be disorienting and confusing. Sometimes we can feel like we've totally lost the trail. So we need to be reminded about what to expect on this journey, what it's going to be like, and what our Master expects of us. 
So that's where we are in Luke's account. We are at the beginning of our Lord's journey toward Jerusalem, which also serves as a metaphor for our walk as Christians. But the second thing that we need to understand in order to get us oriented to what's happening here in the text, we, we, we need to, to remember the dynamic between the Jewish people and the Samaritans. To say that the Samaritans and the Jews did not like each other is an understatement. The truth is, for the most part, they can't stand each other. Sadly, many of you know some of the most vicious feuds are family feuds. Some of you know that from your own life. Well, the Samaritans and the Jews have been in a kind of religious family feud for centuries. 700 years prior to our Lord Jesus' ministry on earth, the Neo-Assyrians conquered the land of Israel. They took most of the Jewish people into exile, but some were left behind. And those who were left behind intermarried with the Assyrians. And it's their descendants who are the Samaritans. So you see, the Jewish people look down on the Samaritans as, as, as kind of a, a half-breed, if you will. And the Samaritans look down on the Jews because the Samaritans had remained in Israel. And from their point of view, they were the ones who had maintained the true religion of Abraham. And to this very day, while the Jewish people regard the Temple Mount in Jerusalem as the holiest site on earth, the Samaritans, of which there are now only about a thousand, they have their own holy site, Mount Gerizim. And these two different holy sites, they serve as, as the picture of this family feud that's been going on for centuries. So on top of the fact that the Samaritans and the Jews don't like each other, Jesus and his disciples are making their way toward the Jewish holy site of Jerusalem by cutting through Samaria. And that's where we pick up on today's passage. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered the village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But Jesus turned and rebuke them. I'm sure you all have seen the sign. Of, it's, a, it's a banner out in front of a church that says that Jesus didn't reject people. And that's true. But he did rebuke them. And sometimes quite harshly. So the first thing that we need to understand as we prepare for this lifelong journey of following Jesus is that, friends, sometimes there will be times when God is going to rebuke us. Now, nobody likes to be rebuked. But it's going to happen on this trip. So we need to be prepared for it and to expect it. God rebukes us because he loves us. And friends, we are all going to be wrong sometimes. So this is a journey where we need to, to, to pack our humility, but leave our hubris behind. Because all of us are going to get it wrong sometimes. And when that happens, the Lord, in his great love for us, is going to rebuke us. But pressing deeper into what's going on here, Jesus rebukes his disciples for wanting to call down fire on the Samaritans. Now, I last checked, I think I've got about $2 in my pocket, and I'd be willing to bet that $2 that there's not a person in here this morning who has ever asked God to call down fire on a group of people. 
maybe you can tell me after the service if you have, but I'm willing to bet that most of you, if not all of you, have not done that. And yet, like the disciples, most of us could probably name some group of persons who, who set our teeth on edge. Maybe it's a, a political party. Maybe it's members of the opposite sex. Maybe it's a racial group or, or members of a, a certain nationality or, or, or the ignorant and willfully uninformed. Or maybe it's just bad drivers on the road. But most of us can identify a group of persons whom we find difficult to like, much less love. We've all got our personal Samaritans. And while we might not have literally asked God to call down fire on them, the truth is we, we wouldn't be terribly crushed if it happened. <laughs> so why does Jesus rebuke his disciples for their request? Well, the text has already told us. He has set his face toward Jerusalem. As in, he has set his face on the cross. Jesus is getting ready to die for these Samaritans, and the disciples want to call down fire on them as he's preparing to give his life for them? Friends, the journey that you and I have, have signed up for is a journey of following Jesus as he goes out to seek all persons for salvation, including that group whom we find most difficult to love. He's going to seek them out, and he expects us to go with him. Now, how on earth do we prepare for a journey like that? We prepare for that journey by acknowledging our brokenness to God. We prepare by asking the Spirit to give us the gift of self-awareness, to, to show us, to give us eyes to see our own tendency to want to call down fire on others, to wish the worst for them, to want to write them off. We ask God for the supernatural grace to see our own personal Samaritans as God sees them, as persons for whom Christ died. Now, there's part of us that would just love to say, Jesus, I, I know you died for all people, but since you love the Samaritans so much, how about you go and, and work on them and I'll just wait here while you do? But friends, that's not the road trip we've signed up for. The journey that we are on is a journey of following wherever Jesus leads on the road to Jerusalem. And that means learning how to love people like Jesus loves them. So here at the outset, we learn that this is a journey where Jesus calls the shots. It's his journey to Jerusalem. We are following behind him. We can expect to be rebuked when we veer from that path. And this is a journey that will require us to love people whom we don't find easy to love because this is the journey to the cross. Well, Jesus and his, his disciples, they then set out on the road. And, and even though the journey has begun for them, there are three quick encounters that Luke records for us to teach us three more things that we need to, to know as we set out on our journey of following Jesus. As they were going along the road, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Which is to say, 
further you go on this journey of following Jesus, the less at home you will feel in this world. Now, this applies to all of us, but I can't help but think about Christian students as they make their way in this world. If you are a student here this morning, I just want to say to you that, that, that if you have ever felt like the odd man out because of your faith, if you have ever experienced, uh, had the experience of, of not being able to go along with the crowd because the crowd was, was going somewhere or, or doing something that you knew as a Christian was not right, if you've ever felt like you weren't quite at home with your non-believing peers, if that's ever been the case for you, then be of good courage. That's part of being on the journey of following Jesus. You will not feel at home in this world. Now, this does not excuse us from engaging the non-believing world. After all, the mission of Jesus is to bring all persons to himself, so we can't hide in some kind of social bunker. But when you set out on this journey, you just need to know that following Jesus means that there will be times when you will feel like the odd man out, and it will become abundantly clear that this world is not your native home. So don't be discouraged when it happens. Foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, Jesus said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. When I was just out of college, a friend of mine took an entry-level position in a small business. And after he'd been working there for a while, the owner pulled him aside and asked him to do something that he had to do on a regular basis that was fraudulent. The owner was trying to get around paying certain taxes or levies that would have been part of the regular operation of his business. Now, it wasn't a great sum of money, just a little bit here and a little bit there, but it was wrong. And my friend was placed in the terribly awkward position of having to choose between his allegiance to his boss and his allegiance to his Lord. Friends, this journey that we are on is a journey that will require us to make choices when the obligations of this world conflict with our obligations to Jesus. And, and trust me, it's going to happen. Now, in our Lord's day, you'd be hard-pressed to find a higher obligation than the obligation of a son to his father, especially when it came to the time of his burial. This was a holy obligation. And yet, this journey to Jerusalem, it is a journey that requires us to place our allegiance to Jesus above every other allegiance. Now, I don't know if they still say the Pledge of Allegiance in school after, uh, after the service this morning. Those of you who are students can tell me. I don't know. But I grew up saying the Pledge of Allegiance. I think many of you uh, did as well. And those words have a way of getting down into your heart. When week after week you say, I pledge allegiance to the flag, those words have a, have a way, well, they have power. And while we do, not, do recite here in church the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed week after week, professing what we believe to be true about God, it occurred to me that we never actually profess on a regular basis our allegiance to Jesus. But that's what we've signed up for. We pledge allegiance to Jesus. 
And should any other allegiance threaten to contradict or supersede our allegiance to Christ, whether it's our allegiance to our family, or our job, or our nation, or a political party, if any other allegiance should threaten to try and supersede our allegiance to Christ, friends, we have set out on the journey of pledging allegiance to Jesus above all else. Perhaps the most stark example of contradicting allegiances was Germany in the 1930s and 40s. It's easy for us to look back on the German people at the time of the Nazi party when most of the, Christ of the country was ostensibly Christian and, and to think how could they let their allegiance to a nation or, or a political party supersede their commitment to Christ? How did that happen? But friends, it's not hard to do. When you love your country or your cause or your family, Sometimes we can begin to conflate and confuse these allegiances with our allegiance to Christ. When I look at the German people in the last century, a people who are not different from us, I find myself saying there, but by the grace of God, go I. What happened in Germany is a cautionary tale about conflicting allegiances. So the second encounter teaches us that this is a journey which requires us to set Jesus above every other allegiance or obligation. I'll just say on a personal note, I'm, I'm aware of this tendency in my own heart. Here, here at St. Philip's, our custom is to sing the doxology followed by our Father's God to thee. But both songs that are aimed toward God. But I don't know about you, but I find that if I'm not paying attention, when we get to our Father's God to thee, it's almost like I downshift the gear and really go in with gusto. And I have to wonder, for me, is that, is that coming out of my love for God or my, my love for my country? It's hard to say. So, so I've begun to try and, and have the discipline of making sure that I sing the doxology with at least, if not more gusto, than our Father's God to thee as a small way of saying, I pledge allegiance to Jesus. It might seem silly, but those little disciplines have a way of shaping your heart. Well, finally, this is a journey that will reorient our focus and gaze. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. My college roommate grew up on a farm. And in fact, even now, though, although he works full-time at a university, he goes back home on a regular basis to help his father tend the, the land. One spring, I went to visit him, and we hopped onto a tractor and headed out to one of their fields. And as we were going along the rows back and forth, I noticed that there was this long rod sticking out of the front of the tractor. Now, it was clear that this was an aftermarket addition because that long rod was not painted John Deere green. So I said to my friend, what, what's the story with this rod sticking out of the front of the tractor? And he said, well, I use that as a kind of sighting device to, to keep me in the road, to keep me from drifting from one road to the other. He said, it's a lot harder than you think. And if you try to look back to see if you're plowing a straight line, you'll, you'll think, oh, I'll just look back for a moment. He said, but by the time you, you look forward again, you'll find yourself two rows over. Friends, the journey that we are on is a journey that requires us to set our gaze forward and not turn back. 
Because when you look back, you can get off course and you can find yourself plowing in a row you didn't mean to be plowing in. And this is actually extraordinary news. Because it means that we have to give up on looking back in regret. It means you have to give up on looking back at what you may have left behind in following Jesus. It means you have to give up on looking back at, at what might have been. Looking back at, at, at old dreams that, that never came true. Speaking as a man who's entering middle age, I have to say I find this aspect of our journey to Jerusalem to be incredibly encouraging. Because middle age is a time for many of us when we are faced with the fact that our lives did not quite turn out like we thought they would. Now, it doesn't mean it's bad, but it does require us to rework some of our dreams in the light of Jesus' call on our lives. It means learning how to look forward, trusting that Jesus does have a plan for us, even while he demands that we let go of some of the dreams of our youth. You know, many men do not survive middle age well, and it's because we keep looking back. We keep trying to recapture some old dream or experience or lifestyle. But following Jesus means leaving those things behind and focusing instead on where Jesus is leading you right now. And once you do that, Katie, bar the door. New life will begin to open up for you as you are released from the past, as that old song put it, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Friends, you all have been called to follow after Jesus as he makes his way to Jerusalem. It's a journey that requires much preparation. But thanks be to God, Jesus has done much of the hard work for us in this teaching. May God grant us the grace to receive his words of preparation with joyful expectation as we set off again, once again today, through those doors on our journey to Jerusalem. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. May God grant us the grace to follow closely behind. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that indeed you have called us to follow after you. We thank you that, that through your word you teach us and prepare us for that journey. And we recognize, Lord Jesus, our need day by day, week by week, to be reminded of what we need to expect as we set out following you toward Jerusalem. So open our hearts, we pray. Pour into them those things that we need, that indeed we might be prepared to follow after you. For we ask these things in your precious and powerful name. Amen.